0: Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles tonight to Hebrews chapter 11. We um, began last Wednesday night um, a study on the book of Hebrews. And to be real honest with you, I, I've, I hesitated to to um, uh, to go through the book of Hebrews verse by verse um, just because it's, uh, um, well, it's tough to do. And uh, the reason it's tough to do is uh, is because it'll take us forever. If I got through a chapter... Every two weeks, it would take us 26 weeks. Tonight, I'm going to cover the first four verses. If I can get through with them. There's, um, uh, last week in the, in, as we introduced the, um, uh, the book of Hebrews, we talked a little bit about the, the condition of the church and, and who the possible writers of the book of Hebrews were, and, and we gave pros and cons for different ones that, uh, uh, Bible scholars seem to think that it was, I have no doubt in my mind, I, I, I usually soften it up a little bit more than this and just say it in my opinion, but folks, my opinion is very strong on this subject. I have no doubt in my mind that Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. And the objections that people uh, give to it, uh, one is, uh, well, it's a lot more flowery language than Paul was accustomed to, uh, to using in the other letters. That doesn't bother me at all, and, and I'll explain why in just a few moments, um, the letter that that was written by the Holy Ghost through, I believe, the Apostle Paul, to the uh, to the Hebrew Christians, is the most detailed and exact book regarding doctrine, regarding the person of Jesus, regarding the work of Jesus, of anything else that we have. And some people will look at that and say, um, uh, "Well, but Paul wrote real terse and and and." Um, unflowery language in some of his other letters. For example, we just finished the, the book of Galatians, um, well, several weeks back, but it was the last uh, full study that we did. And um, uh, there is some pretty strong evidence that where Paul said in Galatians chapter five, uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 12, uh, you see what a large letter I've written in my own hand. Uh, there's a pretty good indication. Uh, the earliest um, manuscripts we have show that the book of Hebrews directly followed the book of Galatians, which again, maybe an, uh, an indication. It satisfies my curiosity, but it, uh, uh, we'll just say it might be a good indication that the book of uh, Hebrews was attached to the book of Galatians and, uh, and Paul's language in the, to the Galatians was real strong. It was real short. There were some verses, uh, or some, uh, of the text that he, that was translated into verses that, uh, that didn't even have verbs. He just made dec- declaratory statements. He, he, he cut them off. He, he, he just, I mean, it's, It's like, well, he was mad at them. And you know how when you get mad at your kids, you don't use long, exact, detailed language. You tell them what to do and make sure they do it in a hurry. Well, that's kind of the way and the tone that Paul wrote to the Galatians. But the book of Hebrews is not like that at all. Now, I want you to consider something for just a moment and that is, uh, like I said last week, we talked about some of the historical setting and the, the conditions of the church and why the book of Hebrews would be written. Let's assume just for the sake of argument that Paul did write it. You can understand that um, uh, why Paul, after having said some of the things that he did to the, Gal- to the Galatian church, recognizing that the, that the, uh, the Jewish, uh, the Judaizers, maybe that would be a better way to, to, to speak of them, some saved, some not saved, that were out of the, uh, the church at Jerusalem, had caused the Galatian churches some severe problems, almost to the point where they'd turned their back on the truth. Well, had turned their back on a lot of the truth. Paul said in one case, uh, one verse to the Galatians, I'm not sure if you've gone far enough to... It may, you may be beyond... me, be able, able to salvage anything out of the church that I started. So it was a real serious situation. So you can see from that standpoint why Paul would want to settle the issue once and for all and answer the Jews... And when I say the Jews, I'm particularly talking about the, the church at Jerusalem and the people that came from the church at Jerusalem and traveled all around that, uh, that were disrupting some of the works that he was starting by the direction of the Holy Ghost. But on the other hand, you need to understand that it's almost like God worked backwards. God called Peter to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter didn't know anything about the law. God called Paul to be an apostle... I'm sorry, I said that wrong. God called Peter to be an apostle to the Jews... And he knew nothing about the Jewish law. He had no training. He had none of the rabbinical training. He had never been to school. As a matter of fact, in uh, uh, Acts chapter 4, it says that when he was called before the council, remember Acts chapter 3, he and John got the man healed at the beautiful gate. When they were called before the council in the next chapter, it says that they took knowledge of them that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Well, is that the right person to pick? To talk to learned people? I mean, it would seem like, from our standpoint, from a natural standpoint, that somebody with degrees, somebody with learning, would listen more to somebody that had learning. That's not the way God used it. And, and, and remember, the Bible says that God uses the foolishness of preaching to confound the wisdom of men. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying God messed up. I'm just showing you how God worked. God sent an ignorant and an unlearned man to be the apostle to the Jews. But he t- took a man like Paul that was trained. He not only had classical training, he had knowledge of the Greek and the Hebrew language, but he had the rabbinical training. He had all the training and, and um, uh, the schooling that the high priest himself would have. And the Bible tells us that Paul was on the fast track. I mean, he was climbing the ladder. He was recognized as a scholar. He was recognized as a, uh, the the best and the brightest, the ones that's upcoming. And and, uh, and he was really in with the Pharisees because he's willing to persecute the, the church, the Christians, even to the point of uh, uh, standing by while Stephen was stoned. So here God takes Paul, who has training in the law, training according to the to the, the law of Moses and, and the covenants and the prophets and so forth, and he sends them to the Gentiles who couldn't care less about Abraham or Moses or whoever else. As a result, many of Paul's letters to the church, to the Gentile churches, he just kind of hits the high spots. He doesn't go into detail about Abraham's uh, covenant with God. He refers a little bit to it to the Galatians, but that's just about it. He speaks a little bit to the Romans about how that, um, you know, God made a covenant with Abraham, but the Romans don't care about the Jewish law. The Romans don't want to become Jews and then become Christians. That's not the purpose. And Paul tries to turn them and steer them away, completely away from anything relative to the, to the Jewish law. He didn't even speak to them about that. He talks to them about Jesus being crucified. He talks to them about Jesus being raised from the dead. After that... Let me tell you who you are in Christ. Forget about everything that's happened up before that point in time. Yet he knows everything. Think about the revelation that Paul received. Paul talked about having been caught up into the third heaven. He didn't know it was if it was an in-body or an out-of-body experience. He heard things that were, uh, King James says, were not lawful to utter. He's saying, I've got things and heard things and saw things I can't even describe. Now, when Paul gets the revelation of who we are in Christ, and he says himself to the, to the Gentiles, he said, the whole world will be judged by my gospel. He didn't say the whole Gentile world. He said, the whole world would be judged by my gospel. That means that revelation that he had of Jesus, combined with the training that he had as, as a rabbi, as the high priest himself, not that he was in line to be a high priest, but he certainly was in line to be one of the lower priests. And all that training that he had, when he got the revelation of who Jesus was, don't you know that those Old Testament scriptures then became alive? Don't you know for the first time ever he sees, well, this is what this meant. This was fulfilled in Jesus. When Jesus did this, it meant this, and, and, and then that opened something else up, and then that opened something else up. You know how that works. You know how when you see revelation about something, see something on the inside? Maybe you knew it in your mind, but all of a sudden you see it in your heart, it just starts opening up a whole new, a whole new trail to go down. It's not one thing that you see. The one thing you see opens up something else that you see. It's kind of like dominoes falling down. That's the way the whole of the Old Testament was for Paul. And Paul, when he tries to minister to the Jews, is run out of town and, and they create this plan, to, elaborate plan to kill him. And so the word of the Lord comes to Paul when he's in Jerusalem early on in his ministry and he says, get out of Jerusalem, Paul. They're not going to accept you here. And so he leaves And the testimony is then had the church's peace throughout Judea. Now the situation comes around where Paul needs to address what the Jews are doing that are disrupt, that's disrupting the church, meaning the Gentile church, churches. Now he has to address that. How's he going to do that? How's he going to talk to them in a way that they're going to receive? He's got the answer for whatever the problem is. The revelation that he's received by the Holy Ghost will fix whatever wrong doctrine and wrong thinking they have. He knows it's all a misunderstanding. That's why in Romans uh, 9, 10, and 11, Paul goes into this big thing. He said, I'd be willing to give up my own salvation if the Jews would be saved. Why? Because he understands where they're coming from. He doesn't look at them as the enemy that needs to be destroyed. He looks at them as those who don't understand the very law and the prophets that they were given. So when Paul starts off writing this letter, he takes... Very great detail. Uh, He goes into great detail. He takes great pains to explain some of the minute things that we don't have anywhere else in the letters. And how does he start off? He starts off by telling what happened in times past. Now, if you were in Paul's place, knowing that you're going to write to the Gentiles, and he had to feel, he had to be impressed that uh, that the Holy Ghost was leading him to do it. I mean, if this was up to Paul, Paul would have done something a long time ago. He would have barreled into Jerusalem and tried to turn the same thing upside down. That's just the way he was. He was a hard-nosed guy. Wasn't, he wouldn't run away from a fight. He wanted to go to Jerusalem. Wanted to stay in Jerusalem to begin with. And God had to—Jesus had to appear to him and say, "Get out of town." So he had to know that he was inspired finally by the Holy Ghost to deal with the issue. And he deals with the issue by giving them the truth, by telling them the truth, writing a letter to them, outlining the truth. Now, if you're in Paul's place, you've been persecuted by the Jews for years. You've had all the experiences and, and uh, the things, most of the things in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 have already taken place in your life. You're in jail now for the gospel. And you write to the Jews, what are you going to tell them? What would be the most important thing to tell them? Can I make a suggestion that I think most people would agree with? The most important thing, Paul knows the problem is they're trying to hold on to what's past. They're trying to hold on to the law that's already passed away. So what's the way to convince them that they need to turn loose of what they've been holding on to? Tell them that Jesus is God. Right? Well, the problem with that is what they already had was from God too. So how's that going to convince them? I mean, pretty clear that the law of Moses came supernaturally. It came directly from God. Moses didn't lie about it. He had the Ten Commandments in his hand when he came down the mountain. The covenant that God made with, with Abraham, that was obviously with from God. The prophets all spoke by God, by the inspiration of God. So how are you going to convince them that Jesus being God is going to cause them or should cause them to turn loose of everything that they had? They know what they've already got from God. So what does he do? He starts in talking about what was and what is and who Jesus is. Verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. I'm going to read down through verse 4. That's as far as I can possibly get tonight. And then we'll just back up and make some comments. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Literally, it's by Son. Notice the, the His, if you're reading in the King James, is in italics. Has, has in these last days spoken to us by Son whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory in the expressed image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, can I ask you a question? What in any of those first four verses leads you to believe that Jesus was God? I want you to understand something that, ca- that carries throughout the whole of the book of Hebrews. Paul does not try to prove that Jesus is superior, and that's the theme of the whole book, Jesus' superiority. Literally, Jesus is better than. He goes through a whole list of things he's better than. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the, the, uh, the fathers. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than, than Melchizedek. Better than Joshua. It goes through a whole list of things that Jesus is better than. He takes point by point that which is important to them. He knocks one leg out from... Knocks the legs out of their foundation for the law and the prophets. One by one by one. But notice how he starts. He starts by talking about what it used to be and what it is now. I want you to realize something, folks. The book of Hebrews emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. Now again, if we're thinking from a natural standpoint, if you're trying to convince the Jews to turn loose at the law and the prophets and follow Jesus and only Jesus' teaching except salvation by faith and everything's by faith now instead of keeping the law, how is focusing on Jesus' humanity going to help you to do that? If you focus on Jesus' humanity, you could just come away with thinking Jesus was a great man and folks you remember this the uh, the question that jesus asked the disciples in uh uh what was it matthew chapter 17 or 18 somewhere around there jesus uh, matthew 16 he asked uh, the disciples who do men say that i am who actually he said it this way he said who do men say i the son of man am and peter answers and he said well some say you're jeremiah or one of the prophets that's pretty good company or you're john the baptist raised from the dead i mean uh, that nobody's he, Peter's not saying anybody thinks you're you know a nut. That's pretty good company as far as the Jews and, and the Law of Moses is concerned. So he said, some say that, say that you're John the Baptist come back to the dead, or some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus said, Who do you say I am? Peter, who do you say I am? And he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. You remember he says, Flesh and blood blessed art thou, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is of heaven. You look at a book on, any book on comparative religions or anything like that, you'll see Jesus lined up next to Muhammad, next to Buddha, next to Confucius, next to whoever else that claims to be anybody with God. Any great religious leader. Sung Young Moon is in there on an equal basis with Jesus. Why? Because they all look at him from a human standpoint. Why then is Paul going to talk about the humanity of Jesus? Keep that in mind. I'm going to answer that question for you before we leave. God who at sundry times and in diverse manner. I want you to notice times and manners. He's talking about God spoke in different times in different, in different uh, ways. In times past. In times past. In times past. He starts off by saying you should understand that God changes the way that he talks to us because it's the way that it's worked throughout history. What times have passed? Folks, there are seven different dispensations. That we know about. That means seven different times, seven different ages that we know about. Four of them have passed. I'm sorry, five of them have passed. One we're currently in and one is yet to come. The first of the ages was the age of innocence. That was Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now, folks, think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden for a minute. There was no rainy day. There was always perfect weather. There were always perfect conditions. Adam didn't even have to get out of bed if he had a bed. He didn't even have to get out of bed to find something to eat. It was right there. Everything was there. He couldn't commit adultery because there wasn't another woman in the world. He couldn't steal anything because everything was his. I want you to realize paradise was literally the perfect situation. There's only one, only one way that he could sin, and that was to disobey what God said about eating of the fruit of the tree. Only one, and he chose to do that. When he fell, when he sinned against God and man fell, that ended the age of innocence. Then it began the age of conscience. The age of conscience was everybody doing what was right in their own eyes. That didn't work out very well. That ended with Noah's flood. Wickedness increased to such a degree that the flood came and destroyed. That ended that age. It ended the age of conscience. After the age of conscience was the age of human government. The age of human government was where men were setting up their own kingdoms. That lasted until the Tower of Babel. Remember, man decided I'm, we should build a tower and then up into the heavens. They're trying to be like God. God confounded their language. The Tower of Babel incident caused man to spread out throughout the world. After the human government age, there was the age of promise. God appears to Abraham and he makes a covenant with him. He makes promises unto him and says, If you will obey me, then here's what I'll do for you. That lasted through the Egyptian bondage. Now, folks, these are the sundry times that Paul is talking about. Paul knows this stuff. He's writing to people that know this stuff. Why didn't he tell this to the Gentiles? Because Gentiles don't have the law. They don't have the book of Genesis. They can't go down to the local bookstore. They don't know any of this stuff. Paul tells things to the Jews that we don't have record of. We don't have any information about any other way. So the time of promise lasts to the age of the Egyptian bondage. God delivers the Egypt out of bondage. You remember Moses delivers them through the Red Sea. That begins the age of... What is it? It's the one they're living in. It's the age of the law. When did the law? the age of the law end it ended with Jesus it ended literally with Jesus crucifixion now Paul speaks of four different alludes to four different time periods the Jews are going to know this he's writing to scholars now he writes this letter attached to the Galatians but he writes it in such a way that he knows it's going to be spread out to everybody else that's what happened to all of his letters his letters would be given to the church and they'd make copies of it and spread it around and they would go much further than just the church that he wrote to He knows this is going to happen with this letter. This letter winds up in Jerusalem, and he knows that's where it's going to go. He knows as soon as this letter gets to the Galatians and there's a section for the Jews, man, this thing is going to hit Jerusalem. You know how gossip travels? This thing is going to hit Jerusalem so fast it'll make your head spin, and he knows it whether he knows it just by human nature or he knows it by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, doesn't matter, it winds up in Jerusalem. We have historical evidence that it wound up in Jerusalem. So he knows who he's writing to. He knows that when he writes about the sundry times and diverse manners, he knows that these people are going to know. Yeah, well, go back to Genesis, you know, look at what happened there. Look at the Tower of Babel. Look at the flood. Look at Abraham. Look at Moses. And that's where people were stuck. They were stuck with the law, the age of the law. And Moses is saying, just like in those different times, God talked to people in different ways. Now we're in a different time and God's using a different way. In the, uh, in the, uh, the age of innocence in the Garden of Eden, how did God talk to them? Personally. There were other times and other ways that God talked to people. There were times where God talked to people. By the way, let me um, hold your finger here and turn back with me to Micah, the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 5. I want you to see something here. Because this is something else that Paul would know that the Jews are acquainted with, not the Gentiles. I know your Bible just falls right open to the Old Testament book of Micah. Right before Nahum, which is right before Habakkuk, which is right before Zephaniah, which, and that helps you a lot, doesn't it? Okay, you remember in uh, uh, you remember in the story of um, uh, Jesus' birth, the wise men show up, and the wise men say, "We've seen the star of the King, the ruler in the east, uh, or, or from the east, and so we've come to worship him and offer him gifts." They get to Herod's palace, and Herod goes nuts about this. He says, well, "You got to be kidding! I'm the king around here." Or he's thinking, I'm the king around here. So what does he do? He calls his wise men. He calls his advisors. Now, who are these advisors? They're Jews. They're Jewish scholars. They're people that he has employed to give him information about the people that he's ruling over. And so he asks them, where does the ruler of the Jews come from? They know immediately. They don't have to go search. They don't have to go look. They say, oh, yeah, well, that's easy. Micah 5, 2 says he's coming from Bethlehem. They know. This is something that's well known among the Jews. Paul knows that these Jewish leaders and scholars that are going to read his letter are going to know these things too. He knows it. He learned it. He was trained it. He's memorized it, just like the rest of those that have had rabbinical training have. But notice what it says in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, But thou, Bethlehem, uh, Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth... Unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Okay, that tells where Jesus is going to be born then, right? It says here's where he's going to come from. He's going to come from Bethlehem. But notice it says something else about Jesus that is usually looked over and uh, ignored when people look at this verse. Who, speaking of Jesus, whose goings forth have been from of, uh, have been from of old, from everlasting. Now, notice what the Bible is telling us. The Bible is telling us that Jesus did not first come to the earth as a baby in a manger. Now, before you think I'm teaching weird doctrine, stick with me. Jesus has been here before. He's been known of as Jehovah. He's been known as the angel of the Lord. He's been known as the rod that Moses stretched out over the the, the Red Sea. He's been known and has spoken either literally or figuratively through his action in a variety of ways. Second Corinthians, uh, uh, no, first Corinthians chapter 10, about verse, oh, what is it? 12, 13, somewhere around there. Paul talks about that when Israel was in the wilderness, they drank from that rock, that spiritual rock, which was Christ, which followed after them. Now folks, if you read that literally, it says a rock rolled after the children of Israel wherever they went. What is it saying? It's saying the water that, that came from the rock, you know, when Moses first struck the rock, later on he was supposed to speak to it, but he messed up and he struck it again. The water that came from the rock to, to, to supply nourishment, literally life, to the children of Israel, the millions of children, the millions of people that made up the children of Israel at that time after they'd come out of Egypt. It says that was Christ. What does that mean? That means Jesus goings, in the earth was started way before he was born in the manger. The tree in Numbers chapter 13, or in, I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter 15, the tree that God told Moses cast into the water to purify the water, to take away the poisonous elements, the undrinkable elements in the water, that tree was Christ. The serpent of brass on the pole, that was Christ. Now, I'm saying Christ purposely because it wasn't Jesus. He wasn't Jesus until he was born in the manger. But he was Christ before then. He was Christ from the beginning. So his goings forth have been from old. That's why I believe, I don't know there's any way that I could prove it other than by the the character and the nature of things, but not, not really find a scripture that says definitively here's what it is. I believe every time you see God operating in the book, prior to Jesus coming on the earth, was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And he talked to them. He spoke to them. He, t- he gave them information. He operated on, on Israel's behalf in a variety of ways, just like Paul says in Hebrews 1.1. God, who at sundry times, at different time periods, different ages, in different ways, spoke through the prophets. Here's one of the ways. One of the ways that he that God ministered to the people during the law, uh the age of the law, he said, hath in time past spoken unto the fathers by the prophets. Well, that's what they're hanging on to. They're hanging on to the law of Moses. Moses is a prophet. He's chief of the among the prophets. He was the law giver. That's what they're hanging on to. He's saying, Yeah, you're right. You were right to hang on to him during that time. But notice the time has changed. All that was time past. Those were those, five, those four ages before, or five ages before. Notice what he says in verse 2. Hath in these last days. Hath in these last days. Times have changed. What are the last days? The last days is the church age. And it will continue. It started from Jesus' resurrection, and or actually, yeah, Jesus' resurrection. I said that right. It started from Jesus' resurrection and continues to the rapture. After that, there's another millennial age that we know of. And then the Bible says in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8, I think it is, verse 7, verse 8, somewhere around there, it says that God will take ages to show his kindness and his mercy to his people. So when we get to heaven, there's going to be age after age after age after age. Now, what's going to distinguish the ages of eternity? I don't know. Kind of looking forward to getting there to see. But the Bible says it will be ages that it will take ages for God to show his kindness, his mercy, his goodness to his people. Seems like heaven's going to be something more than just riding a cloud and playing a harp. You know? Paul knows these things, he knows the Jewish leaders know these things. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners has spoken unto the the fathers by the prophets. So what does he cover? He covers the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets. He says, you were right, all about Abraham, all about Isaac, all about Jacob, all about the law of Moses, all about the prophets, minor and major prophets. Yep, you're exactly right. I'm with you. But times have changed. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by Son has spoken unto us by son. Now I'm going to skip around a little bit and try to cover the important parts cuz I like I said I can't finish this. I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice in verse 3 it says who being. Notice in verse 4 it says being made. Do you see that? Paul is going to introduce something in the book of in the letter that he wrote to the Hebrews in an ex, in a much expanded a much more expanded manner than he did in any of his other letters. It talks about, it uses two different words. Being and being made are two different things. Being, the first word being in verse three is, uh, it has to do with a constant state. Verse four, being made means something became. So Jesus has not only a constant state, His goings forth were from of old and from everlasting. Jesus has a constant state. His constant state, his constant condition was the glory that he had with the Father before he came to the earth. But then when he came to the earth, things were changed. He became or he was made certain things. Before, you remember in Jesus' uh, prayer in John chapter 20? No, it's John chapter 17, I'm sorry. Jesus' prayer at the, uh, on the night that he was betrayed, after he had the Last Supper with the disciples, John chapter 17, Jesus and 18, he goes into a great lengthy prayer. And one of the things that he praised was about the glory that he had with the father before the world began or from the beginning. He said, father, the glory that I had with you from the beginning, restore that to me. Well, that means he left it aside or left it, uh, laid it aside, which is exactly what Paul wrote to the church. Paul wrote to the Philippians and said that Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory and became as a man. Now, what does that mean? That means before, and remember, Jesus had no beginning. He was not created. He has no beginning. He has no end. So from the beginning, he had all the attributes of, of what we know of as God. He was omnipresent. He laid that aside when he came to the earth. He was all-powerful. He laid that aside when he came to the earth. He was all-knowing. He laid that aside when he came to the earth. Oh, but Pastor Mike, jesus you're saying that Jesus wasn't God. No, I'm not. He was God. He was continually God as far as his nature was concerned. But he laid aside the attributes of the deity. He laid aside the attributes of the Godhead in order to come to the earth. That's why the Bible emphasizes Jesus' humanity. He didn't defeat the devil as God. He didn't walk through life as God. He walked through life as man. You remember Jesus' uh, ministry when uh, the in Mark chapter 9 when the father brings his uh, his son, this demon possessed, and the devil throws his son into the fire and into the water, tries to destroy him. Jesus asked him, the him, Jesus, before he ministers to him, this little boy is torn by the devil and throw, is thrown down on the ground has a fit. Jesus asked a question of the father. He said, how long is it ago since this came unto him? You remember Mark chapter 5. It tells us about when the woman with issue of blood came in the press behind and touched his garment. Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? Doesn't he know? I thought he was God. Doesn't the Bible say in Mark chapter 6 and verse 5, in his own hometown of Nazareth, he could there do no mighty work? Doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't do any mighty work. If he's God, I thought he's all powerful. Why couldn't he do anything? See, that's where people miss a lot of what belongs to us in our redemption because they look at Jesus as God. Folks, Jesus had two names, Jesus Christ. Jesus was a common name. It's Greek for Joshua. That's why many times in calling on the name of Jesus, people would say Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because there's a lot of Jesuses out there. He became Jesus when he came into the earth. He was instructed or he, God gave instruction to Mary on what to name him. But he's always been Christ. He's always been the anointed one. He was the anointed one when he appeared as the angel of the Lord to Joshua and said, here's how you take the land. He was the anointed one when he spoke to Moses and said, you stretch out your rod over the sea and divide the water. He was the anointed one. That's why Acts 10.38 says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. How can you anoint God? You can't. But he's laid all that aside to come to the earth. To operate as a man. That's why Jesus, 95% or 90 plus, well, probably closer to 98% of the time. There, in, um, in the, the four gospels, Jesus is referred to 60 times as the Son of Man, five times as the Son of God, and three of those times are in the same setting. Jesus did not emphasize His deity. Why? Because He laid all that aside when He came to the earth. People wanted to know about things like that. People wanted to know, are you come to restore the kingdom to Israel? They want to know, are you going to do God's stuff? Jesus came as man. He came as a man. He had to learn the word just like you have to learn the word. Don't you think he knew the word? He is the word made flesh. But he laid all that aside. Wouldn't that have been nice if he could have brought a chip from heaven, plugged it in, and all of a sudden knew everything? But that's not the way he operated. He operated just like you and I have to. We have to learn it. We have to train ourselves in it. The only difference between him and us is his flesh had no experience. That's the only way that he could be all man and all God. That's why the virgin birth is so important. You take away the virgin birth, you've got nothing. That's why some people say, well, I just don't understand. I I, I don't think I believe that part. I think that part's just a fairy tale. I think that part's just added by man. If it is, then you don't have a redeemer. You can't give up one part of it and it still be all God and all man. And it wasn't 50-50. And that's the point that Paul makes in the book of Hebrews. So what does he say? He says, Jesus was the brightness of God, being the brightness of God. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Folks, as I said, Jesus is referred to as Jesus Christ, the humanity and the deity together. Now, notice it says, who being the brightness of his person. It's literally saying Jesus was continually the glory of God. Continually the glory of God. This word person is the word hypostasis. I know you want to know that. That just sent chills up your spine right there, didn't it? This word is the word that's translated substance in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It literally means substance who Jesus was, Jesus being the brightness of his person, the brightness of God's substance. Jesus was the very essence of God himself. Paul is now going to make the, make, make the claim that he was all God and all man, but he's going to emphasize the man part, the humanity part. So he says he was the brightness of his person. By the way, in, in theological circles, this word person, this hypostasis, is the, is the foundation for um, uh, um, what's known of in theological circles is the hyperstatic union. It means the, the joining together of God and man in Jesus. It's the foundation for everything there. But it literally means substance. Jesus was the substance of God. So being the brightness of his person, that's God. And upholding all things by the word of his power, that's God. When he had by himself purged our sins, that's man. And notice how it says that, when he had by himself purged our sins. Not God and Jesus. Not the Holy Ghost and Jesus. This was a work that Jesus had to do on his own. Jesus purged your sins as man, not God. He was a sinless man, and that's why the importance of the virgin birth was critical, was necessary. Except for the virgin birth, he couldn't be a man without sin. Adam was created without sin, Jesus was created without sin. Jesus was born without sin. Same state, same nature, same condition. The difference was Adam chose to sin. Jesus was without sin. That's why when Jesus came on the scene, the devil knew exactly who he was. This is the second Adam. I got to do something about him once and for all. And some way or another, he thought he had him. But even the Bible tells us had, had Satan known, they wouldn't have crucified him. They wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So somewhere along the way, he thought he had him. So what did the devil do? The devil tempted him with everything all at once. He showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Have you ever been tempted with that? I've never seen that. Jesus was certainly tempted in all points like you are, but you weren't tempted in all points like he was. The devil offers him everything all at once. He says, you came for this. This is what I took from Adam. You want it? Here's how you get it quick. But Jesus didn't sin. Adam had only one way to sin, and that was by disobeying God. Jesus had a million ways to sin. Because there's any number of ways he could have broken the law. And been just as guilty as Adam. So it says, who? Jesus, speaking of Jesus' humanity... Uh, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of majesty on high. Now, folks, I want you to understand something, and this is is key. Everything that we've said leads up to this point. Paul is identifying by the Holy Ghost. If it's not Paul, whoever it is is being led by the Holy Ghost in a masterful way. Because he speaks of certain things. He speaks of the the deity of Jesus. He speaks of what Jesus was before, before the world began. He speaks of what Jesus, hit? Jesus' operation in creation. Uh, You know what? Hold your finger here. Before I say this, turn with me over to Colossians chapter 1. If I don't do it here, I won't get it done. Colossians chapter 1. We'll come back to Hebrews chapter chapter 1 as well, but I want you to see this first. We've just read, Who being the brightness of His glory and the expressed image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of majesty on high. Now I want you to start reading with me in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Paul saying to the church, Gentile church, giving thanks always, or giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet or able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He's made you able to be an heir. He's made you able to partake of your inheritance. Who, speaking of God has delivered us from the power of darkness and God translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Most translations say the son of his love. In whom, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the blood of Jesus, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. Who is the image of the invisible God? Did you notice that it said in Hebrews chapter 11 or chapter 1 verse uh, 3, it says he was the express image of his person? Here it says he's the image of God. Two different words. This word in Colossians chapter 1 is the the Greek word for, uh, literally the Greek icon. It means representation. But the word over in in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 is a totally different word. Totally different word. It's the express image. It's talking about the difference between a, let me use this example. If somebody was a sculpture and they came and and they made a, a statue of me. And the statue is standing right here. They're going to do everything they can through their skill, their natural ability, whatever they can to, uh, to to sculpt this thing, to make it look like me. And when they're finished, they may somebody may say, wow, that looks just like Pastor Mike. But that's that would be an icon. That would be the image, Colossians chapter 1. That would be the image that it speaks of Jesus to the Gentiles. But when it comes to writing to the Hebrews, to the Jews, the express image is a different word. It's the word that we know of as character. It's the Greek word translated into character. And what it means is, you remember in the old, uh, olden days, uh, people would seal letters they'd drop a little bit of wax and they'd put a, a ring and a, a stamp in there and that showed that it was real them, really from them. It was authentic, in other words. Well, that impression... It's what ex- express image means. So if somebody was making a statue and instead of just using their skill and sculpting what they thought they I looked like or whatever, if they took this thing and, and made a wax impression of me or a mold of me some way or another and then set it up, you could see them side by side. You'd say, well, yeah, that looks like Pastor Mike, but that is Pastor Mike. Do you see what I mean? That's the difference in the way that Paul wrote to the Gentiles and the way that he wrote to the Jews because he knows that the way he writes to the Jews is important. He's got to be exact in the things that he says. And folks, I've got to tell you, I think this was Paul's favorite letter. I really do. I think this is where Paul lets everything out. All the stuff he's learned, all the stuff that he knows that they know and the stuff he knows that they don't yet know, he lets it all out. I think Paul's greatest disappointment is not being able to be there when they read it in Jerusalem. Because he knocks out every foundation they've got. Okay, back to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Every creature means the church. He's talking about being the firstborn from the dead. For by him, talking about Jesus, please understand this. He's going to tell the church, the Gentile church, the history of the world. He's going to cover Genesis right here. For by Jesus were all things created... What does that mean? That means when we see in Genesis, the first chapter where it says, and God said, let there be light, that had to be Jesus. When God said, let there be stars in the sky, that had to be Jesus. Why? Because the Holy Ghost is telling us that Jesus did that. For by him. Who's him? The one that offered his blood. That can't be Jehovah Father. That can't be the Holy Ghost. We're talking about Jesus. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. That means Jesus created the universe. We look at the Old Testament. We look at the book of Genesis where it says, and God said, and we think that's the father God. Nope. Jesus. God was the originator of the plan. Jesus was always the executor, the one that would execute the plan. The Holy Ghost was the helper to get the plan accomplished. Folks, the only way that I can explain this is I have a will. If something happens to me, all my worldly possessions are transferred to my heirs. Okay? My will dictates what I want done with what I've got. But the executor is the one that carries out the will. So when the executor does according to what the will dictates, it's me... And my intent being carried out, but the executor is the one that's doing the carrying of it out. That's how it works with God the Father and Jesus. Jesus was the executor of God's will. Make sense? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Now, I want to make a statement here. Paul is going, uh, we'll talk about next, next time we get together how Jesus is better than the angels. That means Jesus created the angels too because they're in heaven and sometimes operate in the earth and they're invisible, right? So that has to include that. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. Okay, we can wrap our head around the by Him. We can understand that. But for Him has to do with God's original plan. And he is before all things. Now the word before means superior to. It means preeminent. It means better than in a lot of ways. It means he was before in origin and he's before or above in importance. So again, it's speaking to his deity. He had to have been deity in order to be here before anything was created. You with me? Okay, and he is before or above or preeminent over all things, and by him all things consist. Now, this word consist means to be held together. You know, one of the greatest mysteries of the world, the greatest mysteries of science, is that they can't figure out how stuff stays together. Because everything's made up of atoms that are spinning. Why don't they all just spin spin apart? Because there's more empty space in an atom than there is stuff. We know of things as solid you can hear me knocking on this this pulpit right here, but there's more space to it than there is stuff. If you took out all the space, this pulpit would be a little mass of stuff. Well, what makes it like this? Everything holds together. Nobody can explain why. It's the mystery of science. There is there's no gravity pulling these things together. The spinning motion causes it creates centrifugal force, causing everything to go apart. What causes everything to hold together? Nobody knows. The Bible says it's Jesus. We know from Hebrews chapter 1 that we just read in verse 3 that it's all things are being upheld or held together by the word of his power. In other words, stuff stays together because that's the way Jesus said it would be. And that's the only reason it does. And he is before all things and by him all things consist or are held together. And he is the head of the body, which is the church, Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. In other words, the highest position. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. The word fullness means completeness in every area. What is it saying? It's saying God's original plan was that everything would be created by Jesus and Jesus would wind up being the ruler of it. Now Back to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Let me read verse 3 again. It says, Who being the brightness of His glory and the expressed image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, that's how everything, once He created it, that's how everything holds together, sticks together. When He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you sit down as God or do you sit down as man? It's not supposed to be a trick question, but we're not accustomed to thinking like that, are we? Here's the point that Paul's making. Paul says of all the things that he could have picked, Jesus coming to the earth was a wonderful event. Changed the world, didn't it? Jesus going to the cross changed things even more. Jesus being raised from the dead changed things even more. But the cataclysmic event for all eternity and all of the universe, Paul identifies as when Jesus sat down. You know why? Why? You know why Jesus has the preeminence in all things? Because Jesus is now the only human in heaven. Now, there are spirits there, but he's the only human body that's there. And when you and I get to heaven, our bodies, whatever the imperfections are, will be recreated. If somebody's missing an arm or a leg, that'll all be recreated. They'll be in heaven with two arms and two legs. If somebody had lost their sight here on the earth... In heaven, they'll regain that sight back. That redeemed body will be perfect in every way. All of our flaws, all of our imperfections will be fixed. Jesus will have holes in his hands and his feet and his side for eternity. Now, here's why that's important. Notice it says, um, back to verse 2, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, Whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Can I ask you a question? How can the Creator be the heir? If I create wealth here on the earth, it's mine. I get to enjoy it, but I'm not the heir of it. I've got to have family to be to have heirs. Jesus is the Creator and the heir. How is that possible? He's got to stop being the creator or come down from his position as creator and take another position by coming to the earth as a man, laying aside his heavenly power and glory, coming to the earth as a man, fulfilling everything that a sinless man would do in order to be the heir. Folks, I want you to understand something. Eternity held in the balance when Jesus was on the cross. He said himself, I could call the angels and they could deliver me from this thing. I could call ten legions of angels. How could he do that? Not as man, as God. He could have taken back up his position as God, as deity, and say, I'm through with this man stuff. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, that prayer is such an important thing. He's praying, Lord, is there any other way we can do this? I'm getting pretty fed up with this human's part. I don't like what's ahead of me from the humanity standpoint. Is there another way we can do this? If there is, let's go the other way. We know that he seeks back for that, seeks to have that glory again. He prayed it in John chapter 17. Give me back the glory that I had with you before the world. You know he wants it. That's why Satan tempted him with the glory of the earth. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Everything hung in the balance. That has something to do with why Satan thought he had him. Now, I don't claim to understand that completely, understand that fully. But somehow or another, Satan saw or thought that the the punishment that was laid on Jesus on the cross when he became sin, he must have, the only thing he's ever seen anything like that before was Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam chose to fall, and he was made sin. Jesus now hangs on the cross, and all of a sudden he's made sin. So from a spiritual standpoint, Satan's looking at all this stuff, and he says... I've seen this before. We've got him. Don't know what we did, but we've got him. And it was all part of the plan. Jesus is just executing the plan. Just executing the plan. Verse 4. Being made. After he sits down, he has become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Folks, I want you to realize something. Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is so important to us because he was the creator of everything in heaven and earth. That means the place called heaven, the place where the throne of God is, Jesus made. The golden streets, Jesus made those. The tree of life in heaven, Jesus made those, made that. The river where the water of life flows freely that the Bible tells us about in heaven, Jesus made that. And now the creator, through his execution of God's will, becomes the heir. So much so that as humanity, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, Luke chapter, what is it? You got to look at this. I'm sorry if I get too excited about this, but you got to look at this. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 22. We don't think in these terms, do we? Paul did. Jesus did. Jesus plays with them. These smart people, these Pharisees that know so much. Notice what it says. Beginning in verse 41, Matthew chapter 22, verse 21. Uh, Luke's gospel gives us this account. Mark's does too. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. Now, most of the time the Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up. When Jesus starts asking them questions, they head for the hills. Jesus asked the Pharisees after they were gathered together, saying, Who do you think, or what do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? Folks can I ask you a question. How can Jesus be the Son of God? He's equal with God. The Son of God implies that God is above him, the Father is above him. That's not true. They're co equal and co eternal. There's a verse of scripture that we always use around Christmas time Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 6, I guess it is. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. What's he talking about? He's talking about the humanity and the deity of Jesus. It always talks about the son being given. The child being born. So Jesus says, what about Christ? I know who Christ is. He didn't say anything about him. Didn't use his name. He didn't say, who do you think I am? That was the question he asked the disciples in Matthew 16. That's not what he's asking them. That would have been an interesting question too. But that's not his question. He said, what do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? Interesting idea. What do they say? They said unto him, he's the son of David. And Jesus answered them and said, how then does David in spirit call him Lord? Psalm 110 verse 1 says, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Or enemies your footstool. Then he said unto them, how then does David, talking about Psalm 110, verse 1, in spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Folks, I want you to understand, Jesus is playing with these people. Jesus knows who he is. He knows that he's deity laid aside to become man. And so what does he do? He plays with them, with the whole idea of God the Father and God the Son. And then David says, speaking of God the Father, the Lord said unto my Lord, Jesus, or Christ, I guess would be a more appropriate term to use. David says, the Father says to Christ, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus messes with the Pharisees. Okay, you smart people, what do you think about, Jesus? what do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? Oh, he's the son of David. Well, how does that fit? God made a promise to David that the ruler that would come from his loins would rule forever. That has to be deity. That can't be a man because man doesn't live forever. So he's got to be talking about deity. He's got to be talking about Christ. So they go back to the promise that God made to David. They say, he's the son of David. And then Jesus messes with them again and says, then why did David say the Lord said unto my Lord? How can he be my son if he's my Lord? Folks, if we can get a hold of this, we can understand who's seated at the right hand of the Father. And you can understand what really belongs to you in redemption. Because it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, would all the fullness dwell. He's there as a man. Paul's going to talk extensively to the the Hebrews about we don't have a high priest that can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Why? Because he's sitting there as a man. He's all God and He's all man, but He's seated at the right hand of the Father as a man. Okay, back to Hebrews chapter 11. I've I've got to finish this real quick. Being made, after He was sat down at the right hand of the Father, being made so much better than the angels as He by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Folks, do you realize that nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to use the name of Christ? Nowhere. Jesus never said, and in my name, meaning Christ, these signs shall follow. You see, in the New Testament, if the word Christ is ever used, it's always attached to Jesus. Because the power is in the name of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father as humanity. So what what is Paul identifying? Paul's identifying that all through the ages, the different ages, God spoke to mankind in different ways. But now we're in a different time. Now of all the times and all the different ways that God spoke to man, all the varieties of, of uh, ways and instances and stories and different things that spoke to the children of Israel, man had always one and only one approach to God. And that's what he talks about in Hebrews chapter 11. He goes to the heroes of faith and goes down lists list, one, one after another on the list. He says, by faith, Abel by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham. Man's way to God has always been the same. And that's the argument that he begins to make from the very beginning. Jesus is seated at the right hand as humanity, not as deity, because man's approach to God has always been the same. And it's this thing called faith, which is the substance of things hoped for, the very person of God. He's going to start off next talking about the angels. We'll pick up with verse 5 next time. He's going to talk about the angels and how Jesus is better than the angels. He'll go into chapter 2 and tell why the believers are better than the angels. And that is everything against what the Jews were, were taught. Everything against what the Jews learned. And he'll prove it point by point by point by point. Folks, you need to realize Jesus died for you as a man. He was raised by the power of God as a man. As a man, he became the heir of all things. All the things that he created now belong to him, not because he made them, but because he earned them through relationship with God. That's why he can always be reached by you simply by reaching out by faith. We make faith this hard thing. Oh, we got to believe. How do we know we're believing? I don't feel like I'm believing. Can I be sure? Faith is the simplest thing in the world. It's you reaching out to somebody that, pa- that paved the way for you and following in their footsteps. Amen? Okay. Well, we'll stop there. Why don't we all stand? My chances of getting through this in 26 weeks are slim. <laughs> but with God, all things are possible. We'll see. Oh, Father, we love you so much. Thank you for your great plan of redemption. Lord Jesus, we have a special appreciation for you when we see how you executed the plan of God. The mystery (laughs) from the ages. And Lord Jesus, the word says that in the dispensations of times, when this age, this church age is finished, you'll gather all things unto yourself. Thank you. Thank you for making a place for us. But Lord Jesus, we thank you for making us co-laborers together with you, joint heirs together with you. And all things are yours. Thank you for your help. Thank you for being our source as we do the work that you have for us here. We love you, Lord. We love you so much. Thank you for loving us even more. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.